Amen. <clears throat> Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the 8th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles where we are going to be looking together at verses 1 through 4. That's Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. And you can find that passage on pay, either page 1077 in your pew Bibles or beginning there on the bottom of page 42 in your Acts journals. And it's been a couple of weeks now since we left off our study of the book of Acts. So I'll just remind you of where we last left off. You remember that we were looking together at that final rebuke that Stephen gives to these men of the Sanhedrin which ended, of course, in his own martyrdom for the church of Jesus Christ. Indeed, these were Stephen's last words altogether. <clears throat> that was this <clears throat> angry group's final answer to all that Stephen had been challenging them on. They picked up stones and they threw them at Stephen until he died. And so we spent some of our time considering that final rebuke. And of course, it was very direct. It could perhaps even be called somewhat heavy-handed. And I pointed out to you three things or three final questions that arose from that final stinging rebuke that Stephen gives to these men. First, we are sort of forced here to answer the question as to the nature of idolatry. What is idolatry? Secondly, we looked at what is it that idolaters do? What is idolatry? What do idolaters do? And then thirdly and finally, we asked, what does true worship actually look like? Well, first we answered that question, what is idolatry? Stephen has, in one sense, been pointing it out all along as he defends himself against the charges that these men have leveled against him. But he really gets to the heart of it as he responds with this final rebuke that began with verse 51 in chapter 7. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You remember those terms. I'm not going to rehash them fully again this morning, but we need to recognize they were very strong words for these men to hear. Stephen just told them they were stiff-necked. Remember what that means. It means they set their heads one way and they did not divert from it. Not in a good way. They did not look to the right or the left. They were stubborn. They were stuck in their own ways. They thought that they themselves knew best. And undoubtedly this term, stiff-necked, had a familiar ring to it to these men. And it wasn't a positive one. It was an offensive one. This is what Almighty God called their fathers when they sinned in the wilderness, worshiping the golden calf outside of Canaan. God told Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. They will not bend, and they will not bow. The truth is, they wanted the predictability of dumb idols made from wood and stone. They did not want the God who is, a living God, a holy God. 
And so they refuse to listen. They will not bow before him. They will not bend the knee. So Stephen also says they are uncircumcised in heart and ears. Again, certainly that's an offensive thing for Stephen to say to these men. Circumcision was the sign that tied them to the covenant with their father Abraham. It was the mark bore by the true sons and daughters of the Most High God. It marked them as separate, separate from the world, separate from their pagan neighbors. And Stephen is doing here with this rebuke really what he's been doing all along in this speech. He's telling them that much like their own sacred history, they do not understand the significance of circumcision either. God desires much more than just their bearing the physical mark of it on their bodies. He wants their hearts. He wants the internal transformation that the sign serves to signify. He wants lives that have been transformed by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit working in them the wonderful good news of the gospel. He does not want, nor does he desire, the mere sign by itself. The shadow, which they once again had made yet another idol out of. And he wants not just their hearts to be circumcised, but Stephen says they're uncircumcised in their ears. God wants his people to truly hear his words. He wants far, far more than just the surfaces of things. The gospel transforms the whole man. And the gospel sets him up for a lifetime of grateful, joyful, and fulfilling service in the kingdom. Never just grudgingly going through the motions and calling it piety. That is the stuff of idolatry. Not the worship of Almighty God, the God who is. Stephen also told them that they, just like their fathers, always resisted the Holy Spirit. They resist it because they live for the flesh. We saw Stephen change the pronouns a bit as he moves from their history to this rebuke. He now says, just like your fathers, not our fathers. Stephen is now differentiating between mere physical and what actually matters. They may have been the natural children of Abraham in the physical sense, but it is those who have run to Jesus Christ, the promised seed, by faith, that are the true children of Abraham. And of course, the true children of God. True worshipers are those who have been transformed from the inside out by the power of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. Idolaters are those who are content to cling to the shadows and want none of their substance. That answers the second question, beloved. This is precisely what idolaters do. They reject the works of God. 
They resist the Holy Spirit. They reject the Son of God. They reject His prophets. And ultimately, they reject His people. That's the real reason that they want Stephen to die. And they always have. And beloved, we talked at length a couple of weeks ago. Do we do this? Do we recognize the power of idolatry pulling on the strings of our own hearts? Well, the truth is we must. If we ever want to experience the answer to that third question, what is true worship? Stephen, in the midst of all this rage, in the midst of all of this hate, proclaimed out loud, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And remember, this is not just Stephen trying to egg these guys on. He's not adding insult to injury here. He's not just trying to make them angrier. He is reporting the substance of his own blessed hope being opened by Almighty God before him. This is sweet validation that what Stephen had been proclaiming to them all along was indeed the truth. Stephen is seeing the fullness of what he has been laboring to get them to see that both they and their fathers had missed. And beloved, we need to see the hope in this vision for us. Because I'm telling you this morning, and I told you a couple of weeks ago, this is the hope of Christianity. The risen king is reigning at the right hand. And more than that, we see here that he's standing. Standing to receive his own beloved servant, Stephen. Stephen is ready to die and be with his king for eternity. And God in his grace gives him this blessed vision. This is not the end for Stephen, but the very beginning. The gospel is doing its work. Sheep are being separated from the goats. And I want to tell you, not all of these angry men fixed upon his death, are bound for hell here. There's at least one we know is not. A very unlikely one. One who is found here holding the coats of all the stone throwers. Saul of Tarsus. He's about to receive from this final prayer uttered from the lips of Stephen as he dies. Lord, do not hold this against them. Give them hearts. Give them ears. Forgive them. Fill them with your spirit. This morning we're going to look at two very different reactions to this whole event with Stephen, and I hope that we will see the God who stands over all of it a little more clearly here. So if you've not already done so, please turn with me to Acts chapter 8 and follow along now as I read from God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word this morning, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> Hear now the word of our Lord. 
Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, it is our joy to come before your word this morning to take part in this ordinary means of grace. We pray, Father, that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many things that distract us in this life. And that this morning, we would give our undivided attention to the truth of your word so that hearing your word through the power of your spirit, we might be transformed to live more and more for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I would tell you I'm not going to yell so I could save my voice, but I'm not even sure I can control it. It's truly very difficult to understate the significance of this moment in the story of redemption. Yet I would also say we probably do it all the time. I think that over the last several weeks of studying this speech or this sermon or this offensive attack of Stephen that I have witnessed, even in my own life, just how easy it is to rush right past a a passage of scripture like this and never truly see it or its significance at all. I confess that Stephen's martyrdom is one that I've done that with many, many times in the time that I've been a Christian, right? We all know the story, right? But have we ever really meditated upon it? Have we ever really chewed on what's here over and over and over again? Well, by the grace of God, I think, or at least I hope that we've begun to. And I hope to continue that work this morning. Because we need to understand something about this death. This is far more than just an unfortunate misunderstanding. This is but a single piece of a thread that runs right through and is woven throughout the entirety of the message of the Bible. Do you know what I'm talking about? Satan the great adversary seeks to thwart the advancement of the kingdom of God. That is true. He is the enemy of God. And as such, he is the enemy of his people. He is, after all, our great adversary. He is the father of lies. And the Bible says that he's prowling around like a lion looking for his prey. He was there in the garden and played his part in the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. He was there when Cain rose up and murdered his own brother, Abel. He was there when Israel was forced into slavery in Egypt. He was there when 
wicked Haman tried to have the Jewish people exterminated. He was there when Herod killed all the males of a certain age in Jerusalem. He's always been there. And his purpose has always been one and the same. He desperately wants to thwart the plan of Almighty God. Praise be to God that he will not, because he cannot. We're going to look more at that fact here in just a bit. But for now, I want us to see that he was there that day, stoking the fires of rage that burned in these men of the Sanhedrin. He was there telling them to pick up stones and not only silence this fool Stephen, but perhaps silence this new sect altogether once and for all. And immediately here we see a sort of seismic reaction that comes about because of the execution of Stephen. We know Saul was there. It was consenting to this death. Many people believe that Saul really was the spearhead for this whole trial and this execution being unlawfully carried out. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know he was there. And he's on the wrong side of things, as we would say. We'll come back to him, though. Something else happened. This event sparked a time of great persecution for the church of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Just a couple of things here. First, we see, of course, that Saul was there. We've already spoken about that. But he was spearheading a great persecution that arose against the church of Jesus Christ. By church here, Luke is pointing, of course, to the Christian church. We need to think about what this means. They were no longer able to publicly meet in the synagogues. They were no longer gathering as we've seen them before in the book of Acts at Solomon's porch in the temple to witness the apostles working miracles, casting out demons and disease, hearing the precious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were not meeting publicly anymore at all. And the reason is that there were many who had risen up in such hostile opposition to them that they had no choice but to run. Luke says they were scattered out from Jerusalem. Notice, though, it's interesting that the apostles themselves were not driven into hiding. They're singled out here as being the ones who did not need to flee. So we know they must have had at least some respect in the community. These were very well-known men at this point. And they themselves remained in Jerusalem, but the rest of the church was scattered. That word translated as scattered in the New King James is a word that means they were thrown like seeds. They were scattered. We are told that Stephen's body was taken and properly buried His death was certainly mourned by God's people. 
He had been a help to the suffering people all around him. He also was working wonders and preaching the gospel and amid the people. And so Luke tells us that devout men, men who probably were Jews who were there and perhaps moved by the gospel that Stephen was preaching, devout men came and they properly buried and mourned him. But the church had gone underground. Devout men came and saw to a proper burial for Stephen. Saul was there consenting to the death of Stephen. And now we find here that Saul was also making havoc in the church. He was doing all in his power to disrupt their progress. He sought to destroy the church of Jesus Christ and his work. He was pursuing the persecution of the Christians with what could only be called reckless abandon. He was passionate about it. Look at verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. It's believed that many of the churches were meeting in the homes of believers and Saul, seeking to end the church, was going house to house and hauling everyone in the house, all the believers, off to jail. Now, beloved, if you think that I have perhaps paced myself to be finished with this sermon in just a few minutes, let me help put a rest to those fears. I have not turned over a new leaf in the new year. I will always be long-winded. My point is this. This is just the surface of the text. Right? This is just one perspective. This is the helicopter view, if you will. And I say that because I want you to see that on the surface at least, it appears that things were going very, very poorly for the kingdom of God. Stephen was a grace of God voice to people who desperately needed to hear the good news of the gospel. They needed to hear that Jesus was the Messiah, that he truly had paid for all of their sin upon the cross, that he had come and walked among them in flesh, sin accepted, that he had willingly embraced the, the cross, though innocent, that his people may live in him by faith for eternity. Stephen was proclaiming the gospel and he was working wonders through the power of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem and people were being transformed, translated from death to life. They were being healed physically and spiritually from the brokenness that is everyone's on this side of Eden. And it appears... That the Sanhedrin just came in, they carried out this sad excuse for a trial, and they actually killed Stephen. They murdered him. And using that event as a catalyst then, this Saul of Tarsus actually made matters worse. So bad that the people had to flee from the city of God. Jerusalem, into the Judean countryside, into even detested Samaria in order to avoid being hauled off to rot in prison. 
things were bad. And they were moving rapidly, not towards getting better, but towards getting worse. And it appears on the surface of things that all might indeed be lost. Where is there hope in this kind of trouble? Murder? Satan, the world, and his minions have made their progress in the war against God and his people. But is that it? Has his kingdom been slowed down by the acts of wicked men? Has it indeed been truly stalled from its progress? Has it ever truly been in jeopardy of failing at all? Beloved, the answer is a resounding no. Not just any no. An emphatic no, like Paul uses in Romans 6 when answering whether we should just continuing, continue in our sin so that grace may abound. You remember his answer, no, may it never be. Do not even suggest such a thing. It's that kind of no. Beloved, listen to me this morning. This kingdom will endure for eternity. This is not just any kingdom. Ordinary kingdoms rise up and they fall down. But this kingdom rises up and it never falls. This kingdom cannot be thwarted because it truly is an unshakable kingdom. Because it is the kingdom of Almighty God. And Jesus is the resurrected reigning king who could possibly stand before him you know, I, I keep asking that question in this we think back to Psalm why do the heathen nations rage what's the point it's folly to ever stand against this king or his kingdom and we have the witness of scripture to prove it do you see it yet there is tremendous hope for those of us in the kingdom that are here this morning. Why? Because the picture here is very clear. Almighty God truly stands over all things. Do you believe that this morning? I'm sad to say this should be Christianity 101, right? Unfortunately, in our current evangelical landscape, it's not. God truly is sovereign over all things. And we can prove it here. Because there's two ways of seeing this story. And only one of them is right. Look with me for just a moment back at the first chapter of the book of Acts. I know it's been forever since we looked at the first chapter of Acts. I think it started back in June. But let's look back to the first chapter of Acts. Let's find out what really is going on here in chapter 8. In that first chapter, the apostles and the early believers were gathered with the resurrected Christ. And he told them that they were to go to Jerusalem. They were to wait in Jerusalem for the promised spirit to be sent to them. And they asked Jesus this question. 
They asked him if now was the time that he would restore the kingdom to Israel. You remember that question? Jesus answered them in verse 7 of chapter 1. And he says, It's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, period. Right? Nothing else? No. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the declaration of King Jesus to his church. This is prophetic. And we've talked about it several times throughout our look together at this book. They did receive the Spirit. They did receive the power, just like Jesus said they would. They did witness to him in Jerusalem, just like Jesus said they would. And they will be his witnesses. Where? In Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Just like Jesus said they would. Do you see, beloved? This is not their plan. This is not them establishing their best guess as to how they should get busy building the kingdom of God. This is not a bunch of clever people getting together and doing things that make some kind of logical sense at all. This is not their plan. Man's ways are certainly not God's ways. This is the fulfillment of God's word. In what means does God use to advance his kingdom? Might and strength and riches beyond measure? No. Persecution, suffering, pain, sorrow, fear. Wait a minute. Why would God do that? Do you ever find yourself sort of hung up in the Christian life on this very question? I think if you don't, you haven't been very honest with yourself. I'm going to tell you that I have. All too often I am. You have suffered an injustice. You have contracted a disease that the doctors say will probably take your life. God has taken away something from you that you held very dear. You cannot stop falling into the same wretched, incessant sin. God is silent when you desperately want his answer. Have you ever been there? Beloved, too often I fear that we live there. I know I do. Why? Why, God? Why would you do that? Why are you making my life so hard? Why are you pushing me closer and closer and closer to the edge? Why are you against me? Can you relate? How do you answer that question? Why would God make it, that is life, so very hard? What can be learned from so many hard lessons? Do you know the answer? 
Do you see it here this morning? Do you know what God will have from his people? His desire is that we trust him. He wants us to take him at his word. He even gives us the faith that makes it all ours. Look at what happens. I'm going to unpack verse 4 more next week, but look at what it says that all this injustice and all this suffering and all this pain resulted in. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere doing what? Preaching the word of God. Preaching the message of the kingdom. Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're here because of it. Beloved, God never steps away from the helm. Do you understand that? He never takes breaks and leaves you somehow to the dangers that surround you. He never sleeps when he could have been there saving you from cancer or from adultery or from being a fool or from addiction or the death of the church. God is actively for us. Do you believe that this morning? Because he, in his sovereign wisdom, is driving history forward according to his perfect will and purposes. So we need to see this in that perspective. Look at it now. Stephen dies. The flesh expects death to be the end, but the spirit proves that from death comes life. And life like we've never known it. God confirms his perfect plan for the kingdom and he gives Stephen a confirming and comforting vision at the time of his death. A vision that he proclaims out loud for our own blessed assurance. Satan and his minions pounce. This is their chance. They raise up Saul of Tarsus, this, this master of, of, of the law, right? They raise up Saul to inflict the mortal wound to this upstart tiny kingdom of Jesus. And Saul hits the ground running and he starts turning up the heat. He consents to Stephen's murder. Undoubtedly, there were others. He has Christians beaten and thrown into prisons. He's the man for the job. He's Satan's guy. He's making havoc for the church. He's bent on the destruction of the church. And God uses the gospel from a dying man's lips to begin a process on this wicked man's heart that will lead him to write just shy of 25% of the New Testament that you hold in your hands. And to be the greatest theologian who ever lived apart from Jesus Christ himself. Persecution and suffering caused the people of God to flee for their lives out of Jerusalem towards Judea and even Samaria. And just like Jesus said, they are his witnesses to the world and the kingdom of God advances again. His truth and his kingdom marches on. Beloved, do you see the God of history this morning? Better yet, do you trust him? Why should you? 
Because his record of his faithfulness to his promise is perfect. Don't take my word for it. Take his. Read his words. Pray for his spirit. If you're weary this morning, I hope you hear this. God has your tiny little life firmly in his omnipotent hands. You are not stuck. God has not abandoned you. God is not making your life difficult because he could never really love the likes of you. He's pushing you towards trusting him and resting in him for eternity. He's revealing to you how big he truly is and how small you truly are and then still showing you the extent of his great love for you anyway. Praise God. Beloved, this is the testimony of Acts. It is the testimony of the Bible. It is God's revelation to you and to me. And we should cherish it. We should run to this precious truth again and again in this life. As the heat goes up, so should our knowledge of his steadfast faithfulness. We see more and more of our own lack of control. So we need to see that we can trust him with our lives. He's moving all things, heaven and earth, towards the perfect redemption of his people. Do you know that this morning? Does it fuel your worship? Is this why you're here? Because I pray that we see this, that we embrace this wonderful truth. God did not redeem you in Jesus Christ by faith and then somehow leave you to destroy yourself. He loves you. He cares for you. He provides for every single need. And he, as the creator, the one who spoke you into existence, knows far better what you need than you ever will. God uses a blow struck against his church in Jerusalem to ignite a raging, cleansing fire that travels the whole world. Followers of Jesus spread out, scattering the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere they go, and Almighty God blesses that labor. He calls his children home from every tribe and every tongue. He leaves us here in this world, not trying to figure out what it will all look like, but he leaves us with uplifted heads. As we look heavenward and expect to see our King coming in the clouds to make all things new. He said he would. Do you trust him? By the grace of God, beloved, I hope and pray that we do because life is much sweeter when we leave our lives in the hands of our creator and we stop trying to bring about our own desires through our own perceived strengths, which are truly weaknesses and not strengths at all. Let the amazing grace of our sovereign and mighty Lord shine through in your worship of him this morning. Amen.